I had one of those weeks of reflection these past few days that nearly everybody goes through. It's where you look back on your life and you take inventory of the things that have happened and the things that haven't. Those time periods exist for everybody. Well, in my few days of reflection, I came to what I would refer to as a somewhat sad realization. Here it is. My name is not associated with any record whatsoever. While I was reflecting, I walked through the halls, mentally walked through the halls of Wichita High School Northwest in Wichita, Kansas. And I realized that my name is not written in the hallway for any great achievement whatsoever. It's not even there. I went to Hutchison High School in my mind, which is where I graduated from high school, and I thought through the hallways there. I looked at the trophies, at least in my mind, and I realized my name is not on any of them. Not a one. I thought about Manhattan Christian College. My name is actually written in the hallways there for no greater achievement than graduating with every other graduate since 1927. So no record, nothing went on in my period of reflection. I thought through all of my athletic achievements. Here's the greatest one I could come up with. I was on the swim team at Wichita or in Wichita. I swam with a guy who would become an alternate Olympic swimmer in the 1988 Olympic Games. His name was David Holmes. My job was to be his sea biscuit, which means swim in the lane next to him and lose every time so that he can feel good about what he's doing and he can accomplish great things. I did it really, really well. (laughs) No record there. I got to thinking about the golf course. Maybe I would have some sort of notoriety on the links. Here's what I came up with. The closest I'm ever going to have for a record on the golf course is the number of consecutive holes played off of the fairway. That's the closest I'm ever going to get. My name is not associated with any record whatsoever. And then in my moments of depression and those moments where I thought, good night, What have I accomplished? Absolutely nothing. I realized that this is actually a record-setting year for me. Today represents 45 uninterrupted consecutive Easter worship services that I have been at. I'm 45 years old. I was in Easter the first year I was alive, and I have been in Easter services every year since. That's the closest I'm ever going to come to a record. And today represents number 45. Then I thought, there are probably people in church that can trump my record. So let's find out. Is there anybody here that can beat 45 uninterrupted consecutive years in Easter services? Raise your hands a little bit higher. Janine's got me. Carol and Jesse have got me. Betty Ward's in the back. She's, yeah, Colleen's got me. Anybody that can go 50? 55? 60? Janine, we're going to have to ask you to leave. 60, 65, 70, holy smokes, Carol, 70, wow, give them a round of applause, so really what you're saying is 45 is nothing, making me feel even better. After I realized that I had these 45 consecutive uninterrupted years in Easter worship services, I started replaying some of the sermons I'd heard, some of the Easter messages that I have heard preached, and maybe some that I had preached myself. I thought about the greats 
of the Easter story. Of course, Jesus came to mind. I've heard a lot of Easter messages on Jesus, and that's the way it should be because he's the reason we're here today. I thought about Mary and and the fact that a number of messages have been preached about her. Peter, a lot of sermons have found their material in Peter's life, and Easter sermons are no different. I thought about the Roman soldiers. I've preached Easter messages about the Roman soldiers. I've even preached about Satan on Easter Sunday morning. These are all the main characters of the Easter story, and each one of them can have its own subject matter. Each one of them can stand alone as a message. And I started rereading the Easter story from all of the Gospels. I wanted to see all four perspectives. And I realized that there is a main character that I have never focused on at all. I have never heard anybody else focus on him. I realized that I know very little about this guy, and I wanted to get him to know him better. So I decided I would preach part of his story this morning. His name is Barabbas, or at least that's what I've always called him. Let me show you a portion of his story from the Gospel of Mark. Just in case you're not familiar with him, this will bring us all up to speed. Really, this is about the most the Bible would tell us on this guy. Mark chapter 15, verse 6. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now here's this guy. We know his name, Barabbas, or at least that's what I have always called him. Come to find out as I have studied his life these past 10 days or so, that's actually not his name at all. It's his last name. And it is actually two names. One part of it is a descriptor. A lot of people, ancient historians, would tell you that his first name was Jesus. The middle part of his name is B-A-R, Bar, which means the son of. In Jewish times or biblical times, that's how most men were known. They were known by their first name and then who their father was. So my name, or at least the way I would be recognized, would be Phil Bar Dalton. I'm the son of Dalton. That's how he would have been known. Well, if his first name was Jesus, he was the son of, B-A-R, and then the last part of that name is Abbas, which means the father. He was Jesus, son of the father. That's actually his name. Over and over and over again, I've called him Barabbas, but really his name is Bar Abbas. He was in jail for being an insurrectionist. He had led a rebellion against Rome. He was trying to get people to rise up against the government, telling them that they were being taxed unfairly and they didn't have to continue that way. So follow him and he would do something about it. Well, when Rome heard that that was the rebellion he was leading and that was his platform, like everyone else, they threw him in jail. One of the most heinous crimes the Bible reports that he committed was murder. So he was locked up for that. He was sentenced to die. He was going to be executed by crucifixion. 
That's the way they handled all the insurrectionists. That's the way they handled all rebellion leaders during those days. They would kill them. They would get them out of the way. The most famous thing he ever did was share a jail cell with another guy named Jesus. This one we would call Christ. Jesus Christ. Now you've heard me say before that that's not Jesus' full name. Like we would say Phil Allspaugh, we say Jesus Christ. That's not his name. Jesus is his name. He would have been known as Jesus Bar Joseph. That's how he would have been known to everyone around him. They attached, the same way we do, the title Christ to his name. It means Savior or Messiah. And Jesus, Barabbas, shared a jail cell with him. That's the most famous thing he did. That's the point of notoriety for him. He shared a jail cell with Jesus. That's it. The Bible would go on, though, to tell us a great deal more. So would ancient history. You see, the Bible would tell us that when they asked who they wanted released, the chief priest, all the Jews that were outside of Pilate's court, when Pilate asked who they wanted released, they requested Barabbas. That's who they wanted. Don't give us Jesus Christ. Give us Jesus Barabbas. It was somewhat of a, another blow to Jesus. This guy is called Jesus, son of the Father. Give him to us. Even though Jesus Christ would call himself the son of God, they said, give us the son of the Father. That's who we want. He was a murderer. He was a rebellion leader. He was an insurrectionist. They wanted him out because of what he could do. And the Bible says that Pilate released him. Now, can you imagine what that was like when he walked past Jesus Christ? Can you imagine what went through his mind? Bible doesn't tell us, but can you imagine what went through his mind? Can you imagine what Jesus Christ's reactions might have been like? Did he wink at him? I wonder that. As he walked past Jesus still in the jail cell, did Jesus just wink at him? Did he smile at him? Was there any kind of a verbal interchange between the two of them? Again, the Bible doesn't tell us, neither does history, so all we can do is suppose. But let's just suppose for a minute that Jesus Christ spoke to Barabbas. Maybe he said, it's all right. You go ahead and go. This is why I came. The ancient traditionalist actually teach that there is a thing called the mystery of Barabbas. Theologians have chased it since the first century. They've wanted to know more about this guy, and they have speculated all kinds of different things. And a number of the ancient historians, not always the respected ones, but a number of the ancient historians would say that Barabbas followed Jesus to Golgotha, that he went and watched them crucify him number of those teachers would say that he was present when they drove the nails into the hands and the feet of Jesus. He watched the whole thing. If you buy into the mystery of Barabbas, then maybe you could believe that. I certainly want to. I want to believe that Barabbas or Barabbas, whatever you want to call him, became a believer. Here's why. He was the very first recipient of the grace that is associated with the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the very first one. The Bible records it that way. Barabbas or Barabbas was the first one to have Jesus die in his place. Remember, he was under the exact same sentence that Jesus was. He was set to be crucified and Jesus said, I will pay that penalty. Now, here's the thing about Barabbas. Most of us 
look at him as a criminal. We would dismiss him as an insurrectionist. We would throw him away as the leader of a rebellion and a murderer. But the truth of the matter is, he's not much different than we are. Not at all. Because except for Jesus Christ, we are all under the same penalty, the penalty of death. And Jesus said, I will pay the price for all of them. For Barabbas, I will pay the price. For Phil, I will pay the price. For you, I will pay the price. Now, we might argue that it didn't have to be that way. In fact, when Jesus was in the office or the inner court of Pilate, he had all kinds of options available to him. John Ortberg, in his wonderful work on Jesus, lists some of those options. It's really tremendous when you think about what could have happened. Jesus could have fought against Rome. He had a number of followers. He had a number of people willing to do whatever he asked them to do. Jesus could have fought. He didn't. Jesus could have withdrawn out into the desert, somewhat like John the Baptist did, and he could have started his own little community where everybody would sit under this new teaching that he had brought, and and as others came and joined them, then the movement could grow out of the desert. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't withdraw. He could have cut a deal with with Pilate and the rest of those in positions of authority. Maybe that deal would have allowed him to make changes within the Roman government from the inside of the political circles. Jesus could have cut a deal with them that said, I'll work alongside you and let's see what we could accomplish together. And he chose not to do that. He could have sat with the chief priest and the the teachers of the law and said to them, hey, let's all come together. We will collaborate with one another and we will change everybody's faith system. We will together show them a whole new way of believing. And Jesus chose not to do that. While he was in Pilate's inner courtroom, he could have called down a legion of angels, 10,000 angels that could have come to his side that could have rescued him and got him out of that courtroom. They would have kept him from the cross. He could have, for all intents and purposes, you think about this, he could have brought heaven to earth, and when he did that, everything could have changed. All of those options, everything that was about to take place, hinged on the simple command of Jesus Christ. One word, that's all it would take. Just say the word and his followers would have gone with him. Just say the word and the chief priest would have submitted to him. Just say the word. On and on and on, all those things would go. Have you ever studied the etymology of that statement? You've heard it as many times as I have. Just say the word, I'll be right there with you. The etymology of it, the history of it is this. This is the actual meaning of that statement, just say the word. It means you give the signal and we'll all follow. That's what it means. So if Jesus would have given the signal, if he would have said the word... Everything could have been different. But I want you to see what he chose to do instead. He chose, first of all, to remain silent. He said nothing. It was annoying to Pilate. It was annoying to the chief priest. Jesus said nothing. When he did choose to speak, it was from the cross. Listen to what he says. This is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. 
And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. See how people were waiting for him to say the word? Some of them were waiting very sarcastically, very caustically. Others were waiting with great anticipation. They just wanted him to say the word. Verse 41 goes on. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus is quiet. He's doing nothing. All he had to do was say the word and everything could change. And all these people wanted him to. And he's doing nothing. Nothing. And listen to what he finally says. This is found in the Gospel of John. Chapter 19, the last part of verse 30. Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's the word he chose. It is finished. This is over. Do you have any idea what those words meant to the people that were watching? Do you have any idea the significance of those words, it is finished? Think about it. In Barabbas' life, it is finished meant that he would get a second chance. For Barabbas, it is finished meant that he could leave. He was free. He walked past Jesus and he breathed free air again. Barabbas went on his way. For all of the Roman soldiers that were there, when Jesus says, it is finished, it meant that they would go home and spend the night with their families again. They would be close to their wives again. Had Jesus said anything else from the cross, had that legion of angels come and lifted him off of those beams, had he led a rebellion, had he led a military conquest against Rome, they would have all died. And they would have either died at the hands of Jesus' followers, or they would have died at the hands of Caesar. For them to lose control of Jesus on their watch meant that Caesar would have killed them, would have taken every one of their lives. For the disciples, it is finished, meant that they would live to experience the God-ordained purpose for their lives. They would live to do what God had called them to do. For us, it is finished, means that we would experience salvation. For us, it means that we would experience forgiveness of our sins. For us, it means, just like Barabbas, we would be given another chance because we wouldn't have to die under the penalty of our sins. And that chance would be tied to Jesus Christ. It would be tied to the cross. It would be tied to everything that He was going to do for us. That's what it is finished means. I want you to listen to what happens right after that. Verse 31. Now it's the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it 
has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. All of that happened on Friday. All of that happened on a day that today we would refer to as Good Friday. If you are one of the disciples, if you are one of the followers of Jesus Christ, that day was anything but good. It was anything but great. They had wonderful anticipation on Friday of what Jesus was going to do. Even as he stood before Pilate, even as he went through everything that he went through, all of his disciples, all of his followers thought something else was going to happen. All of them believed that Jesus was going to come off of that cross. My guess is even after he died, they thought they were going to witness something pretty spectacular. Jesus was going to come back from the grave right there. Now you have to remember, he had taught that his body would be destroyed. He taught that he would be buried. He taught that it would take three days before the resurrection would happen. But they forgot all of that. They weren't thinking about any of it. On Friday, they were just thinking that this is not what we expected. This is not what we wanted. If Friday was bad... Saturday was worse. Saturday was a day of reflection. Friday was a day of great expectation. Saturday was a day of reflection. Most of that reflecting began with what-if questions. They might have sounded like this. What if Jesus was not who he said he was? What if everything that we have believed is wrong? What if we are next in line for a cross? Because you see, during those days when Rome put down an insurrection or a rebellion, they killed not only the leaders, but they killed all the followers. That was the best way to get rid of any kind of a movement against them. They just wiped everybody out. The disciples, especially the twelve, had to believe that they were headed for a cross of their own. So they ran. They hid. They locked themselves behind closed doors. They stayed where they thought nobody could find them. They were scared. What if we're... Next, Saturday was a tough day for them. It really was. What they didn't know, what nobody knew, is that Sunday was coming. Sunday was going to bring a a whole new light on this dark situation. But even by Sunday morning, they still weren't expecting much from God. They had given up on expectation. They had given up on, on, on anticipation. Want to know how I believe that? Well, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 1, shows it to us. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They weren't going there to see if Jesus was out of the tomb. They expected him to be in it. They weren't going there with any kind of resurrection expectation. They were going there to prepare his body for a funeral. When those women went out to the tomb early in the morning and collected all their spices to take with them, they went to anoint the body of Jesus. They went to say goodbye. They went to put an end to everything. It was closure for them. That was it. Jesus is gone. He's in the tomb. There was no expectation. The disciples were not the first ones there. They were still locked in a room trying to figure out what to do with their lives. Sunday was here, and they weren't looking where they should have. They weren't expecting what was about to happen. You need to see what takes place. This is picking up in verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. 
In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now, I want to stop there for just a second and remind you of this great biblical truth. The angels did not move the stone so Jesus could get out. They moved the stone so we could see in. Jesus was already out of the grave. They did not move the stone to let him go. That wasn't necessary. If Jesus wanted to walk through a rock, he could walk through a rock. They moved it so everybody could see in. Then listen to what they said to him. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. That's what it took. It took the resurrection to jar their memory. It took them looking into an empty tomb to remember that Jesus was who he said he was. It took an empty tomb for them to look into it and remember that they were right. They were following the right one. That's what Easter Sunday morning is all about. It's a reminder that we're following the right one because the tomb is empty. There's nobody in it. Jesus is already gone. That is such a great part of the story. Friday was bad. Saturday was worse. But Sunday was coming. And everything was going to be different. And it was. Verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And when he went away, wondering to himself, what had happened. How did all this play out? How did all of this take place? Here's the thing. Peter set the stage. Actually, the ladies did. The ladies and Peter set the stage for what has happened time and time and time again since the first Easter Sunday. I would call it resurrection reactions. Peter and these women set the stage for how everybody will react when they come face to face with a resurrected Christ. Resurrection reactions are as numerous as the colors of a rainbow. They are as numerous as anything you could possibly imagine, and they're very personal. How a person deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as varied as well as anything can be. And in those personal reactions, some people get it right. Some people miss the mark all the way around. The key element of the resurrection is to recognize that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if we can believe that he rose from the dead, then we can accept, like Paul would teach in 1 Corinthians 15, that we will rise from the dead. We can also accept, as as the apostles would teach all through the New Testament, that we can have a brand new life, a brand new life in Jesus Christ. That's a resurrection reaction. What do I do with an empty tomb? I want to show you how varied these reactions could be. If you have your Bible with you, open up with me to the Gospel of Matthew again. Matthew 28, we're going to start in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. I love that some of the modern translations replace the word greetings with really the the true meaning behind what Jesus said when he showed up there. This is the way they would translate it. Jesus showed up, appeared to the women and said, hey, (laughs) isn't that great? Because Jesus' resurrection reaction was one that he'd been setting up for the better part of three years, if not the better part of 33 years. So here he is in their presence. It would make sense that he would just say, hey, what are you guys up to? I like that. Moving on. He said, uh, hey, greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Now, that's the first resurrection reaction. A lot of people, when they come face to face with a resurrected Christ, want nothing more than to tell everybody else they ever come in contact with about him. That's what these ladies did. They ran to tell others about him. That's a wonderful resurrection reaction. Look at this. The grave is empty. The tomb is empty. And all this hope is ours again. I want to tell people about Jesus. But not everybody reacts that way. Verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now here's at least two more resurrection reactions. The first one came from the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They said, hold it, this can't be. And if it is, we've got big problems. So let's cover it up. They created this elaborate story to try to explain away what had happened. The Bible says, did you catch this? That those kinds of stories are still circulating around today. Started with the Jews, made its way to the Gentiles. There's a lot of stories about how Jesus came out of the tomb, and and they're there to try to lead us away from the truth. Then you have these Roman soldiers, their resurrection reaction. First and foremost, they were afraid because of what it meant to them. If he was out of the grave, they were in trouble. So then they did what a lot of people do when they come face to face with the resurrected Christ. They started trying to cover themselves. They started trying to take care of everything on their own. They sold it out for a sum of money. They were willing to say whatever it took. Friends, I want you to know this. In the face of the resurrected Christ, you can never, ever take care of things on your own. All you can do is accept what he did. And we still have a lot of people that try the exact same track. I'll try to work my way to heaven. I will try to work my way into favor with God. I will try to do this or I will try to do that. And God will look on me and smile. And that's just not the case. Because there is only one way to be reconciled with God. And that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And a resurrection reaction has to involve that. It requires that, an understanding that we are separated from God and the only way to close that gap is through His Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot do it on your own. Somebody say amen. Amen. They were trying to do it on their own. Pick it up with me in verse 16. I'll show you two more reactions. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, 
but some doubted. That's just two more resurrection reactions. Some doubted. They'd heard all the stories. They looked into the tomb for themselves. They knew that Jesus was who he said he was, yet they doubted. Why would they doubt? Well, because Satan wants them to doubt. Because they have a natural bent for doubt. Because they're skeptical by nature and by wiring and makeup. So they doubted. No matter what they saw, they doubted. Now, hear me on this. If you are a person that has doubted who Christ is, if you are a person that has doubted the resurrection, that is not sin. It is not sin to doubt. It is sin to reject. It is not sin to doubt. Because doubting will lead you to great questions. And those great questions will lead you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because over and over and over again, you will find God proving himself. Doubt is not sin. What you do with those doubts can become sin. So you have to be careful about it. Here's the other reaction, and this one is just wonderful. They worshipped. They worshipped. Do you know why they worshipped? Why they worshipped a resurrected Christ? Because they understood what it meant for them. They could be forgiven of their sins. Like Bar Abbas, they could start things over again. They didn't have to live under the penalty of death. They didn't have to worry about what waited for them. Instead, they could throw all that worry, all that anxiety away and know that they were safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. They were safe in the arms of God. And so they worshipped. Now that's a resurrection reaction. I will worship because I know what God has done for me. I will worship because I knew who I was before Jesus died and I know who I am after he came out of the grave. I will worship a resurrected Christ because my life and in fact eternity is different for me because of him. I will worship on Easter Sunday morning and I will worship forever because without Jesus coming out of the grave, nothing matters. Paul would teach in the book of 1 Corinthians that if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the grave, if he didn't come out of that tomb, then everything that we have ever believed is in vain. It is worthless. But if Jesus did rise from the grave, and he did, Paul would say, that's the gospel that I have preached to you. If Jesus rose from the grave, then so will we. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then what does it matter? But because Jesus came out of the grave, there is, and it matters. When Jesus says it is finished, he put a capstone on any fear of death that exists for believers. When Jesus says it is finished, when he hung on that cross, he took care of the penalty for our sin. But when he came out of the grave, listen to this, when he came out of the grave, he brought hope back into the world. Without him, it just wouldn't matter. And if he didn't rise from the grave, it just wouldn't matter. So they worshiped. And we worship because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Do you believe that? Say amen. Amen. Say it one more time with some conviction. Say it one more time like you mean it. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Why don't you give God a round of applause for that? For us to really understand what all of that means and what it's all about, We have to ask some good questions. God doesn't have any problem with questions. Ask good questions. Pilate did. He started out by saying, What then shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? 
That is very possibly the most important question in all of the Bible. What shall I then do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Jesus would ask questions of his disciples that sounded like this. Who do the people say I am? Peter would step up and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. Ask questions. Dig deep into the Bible and see what you can find. What you will discover is the truth of God's word, and that is a truth that saves. Dig into the Bible and ask questions, and you will find a resurrected Christ. From the beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end, it builds to the resurrection. It builds through Jesus Christ, and he changes us. He changes everything. Here's a wonderful quote for you. Take a look at this. The Bible is not a book for the faint of heart. It is a book full of all of the greed and glory and violence and tenderness and sex and betrayal that befits mankind. It is not the collection of pretty little anecdotes mouthed by pious little church mice. It does not so much nibble at our shoe leather as it cuts the heart and splits marrow from the bone. It does not give us answers fitted to our small-minded questions, but truth that goes beyond what we even know to ask. You ask, God will answer. And that answer will take you every time to an empty tomb. That answer will take you every time to the resurrection. It'll begin with Jesus' resurrection and it will end with yours. That's what Easter Sunday is all about. It begins with Jesus' resurrection and it ends with yours. I hope you believe that. Why don't you stand and pray with us this morning? We're going to offer an invitation in just a minute. If you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ, why don't you let today be the day that you do that? If you have questions and you need somebody to help you find the answers, if reading the Bible is difficult for you and you need somebody to help take you through some uncharted water, why don't you do that today? Ask those questions. There's people here that would love to lead you through it, that would love to pray with you. In fact, they would love nothing more than that. So why don't you respond to this invitation? Just go over to this door to my right, your left. Somebody will be there. They'll meet you and they'll make sure your questions get answered. Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, Today really is a great day. I could understand how the disciples might have felt on Friday. That could have been tough. Saturday would have been tough. Lord, Sunday was coming. Sunday was a great day. And it still is. Because Sunday, Easter Sunday, allows us to focus on you. And for that, we are forever grateful. Thank you, Lord, for being here with us this morning. I pray that you'll speak to all of our hearts. Touch us where we need to be touched. Show us what we need to see. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our lives to what you have to teach us. And Lord, help us hold on to it forever. In Jesus' name, amen.